Well, today as I return from my annual sabbatical, I want to thank our leadership for graciously making it possible. And I want to thank all of you for being so supportive of it every year. This year, I entered August mentally tired, not spiritually discouraged, and not doubting. You can be tired in the fight without being tired of the fight. I was just tired. And the Holy Spirit kept reminding me why I was so fatigued. He gave me a picture. He told me that pastoring a diverse congregation in an increasingly polarized culture is like steering a sailing ship through numerous hazards on the way to its destination. And in the case of the church, those hazards include the hidden reefs and rocks of false teachings and false doctrines, the strong currents and shifting winds of fallen human culture, the voices of other navigators who suggest your course is wrong, and a few unconvinced passengers who are always busy drilling holes in the bottom of the boat. And because of that, pastors and congregations need to be certain of two things. They need to be certain of their destination, and they need to be certain of their course. They need to be certain that both have been ordered by God. And the good news is we can be certain. We don't have to speculate because Scripture makes it clear God wants His church in the present to look like His church in eternity. An assembly that fulfills his every ethnos, his every nation promise to Abraham. One comprised of all ethnicities. One free from the draining, dehumanizing divisions of human sin. An assembly that knows the joys of a unity that only God can create and only God can sustain. Thirty-five plus years ago, when I came here, God gave me a very clear prophetic revelation regarding ACAC. Some pieces of that revelation were short-term. They were all fulfilled exactly in the smallest detail. Some of them were more long-term, and God is still fulfilling them. But he told me that he was going to transform us from a monocultural church to a more appropriate expression of his kingdom. And God's been doing that. But our journey isn't over. We haven't arrived in port yet. And there are numerous hazards that await us, possibly greater hazards than we've ever faced previously. So over these next few weekends as we move toward our annual meeting, I want to revisit some of God's desires for us as a fellowship And I want to remind us of the hazards we're going to have to navigate if we're going to bring the ship to port. And as I do, I want to emphasize one fundamental truth. God's church must be shaped by His Word and His Holy Spirit, not the opinions of people outside or even inside the church. Because those outside the church will always find God's Word unacceptable. The church will never be popular in a fallen creation. And those inside the church can be severely compromised by fallen culture. And then they might find God's Word unacceptable 
or impractical. So today we're going to revisit God's Word, and specifically the words of David as he opened what we know as Psalm 133. I want you to listen to them as if you're hearing them for the very first time, because I believe that's key to hearing them at all. David said, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Today I want to talk to you about a place that every one of us wants to be in, the place of blessing. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, a sabbatical notwithstanding, a refreshing notwithstanding, I still stand here totally insufficient for the assignment you've given me. I cannot preach and teach your truth out of my own strength, out of my own intellect, Apart from your Holy Spirit, I can do nothing. So as always, I pray for a fresh equipping from your Holy Spirit for this never-to-be-repeated hour in human history. And I pray it not only for myself in a teaching role, but I pray it for all of us in an application role. Help each one of us to hear what you're saying to us individually about our next step of growth. Help all of us to hear collectively what you're saying to us about our next step of growth. We want to be hearers of the Word, but also doers of the Word. Toward that end, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in us and in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And as we listen for God speaking through His Word today, may the Lord be with you. Have you noticed that the moments when God chooses to speak reveal something of His intended message? And that's true of the words God spoke through David. Most historians believe David wrote this psalm in the aftermath of what I call a double division, a political division and a domestic division. He wrote in the aftermath of a bloody civil war within his own nation, and the opposition side was led by his own son, who tragically was killed in the conflict. Following the end of the war, following a fragile truce, David's countrymen streamed into Jerusalem to worship. They came again in a very fragile, recently born unity. But it was a welcome relief from the ugliness and the bitterness of division. And as David watched people who just days earlier had cursed one another, vilified one another, hated one another, and attempted to kill one another, now jointly praising God and carrying banners rather than swords and spears, David wrote, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. 
That word behold is a strong word. It indicates something you don't see every day, but something God wants you to see. And the words good and pleasant indicate God's full approval. So David, in essence, was calling us to pay serious attention to something that God highly values so that we will value it as well. Because if you love God, you love what God loves and you value what God values. And David was speaking about unity among God's people. Now, sadly, sadly, it appears in many places unity within the body of Christ, isn't highly valued. And I say that because believers dwelling together in unity is still something you don't see every day. It's not common. The polarization afflicting our nation often afflicts the body of Christ. And to make matters worse, some who know that that condition is not acceptable to God in their efforts to make things better only make things worse because they call out other believers whom they judge to be deficient. And they call them out with ungodly pronouncements, with sweeping generalizations. How many of you know generalizations are, an indic- are indicative of intellectual and spiritual laziness? They use sweeping generalizations. They all. They make absolute declarations where they don't have the right stuff to be making absolute declarations. And they render false judgments against their fellow believers. They do this because they feel. You don't know what they feel. They do this because they think. You don't know what they think. Man looks on the outward. Only God knows the heart. And that doesn't accomplish anything because you don't inspire unity by dividing your fellow believers into the enlightened and the ignorant. That only serves to create arrogant winners, and resistant losers. Romans 12.10 tells us as followers of Jesus that we're to outdo one another in showing honor, not in creating snarky tweets, not in showing superiority, not in showing that we're woke where others aren't. Now, somebody might be thinking, well, pastor, the prophets, when they confronted evil, often used strong language, right? And they referred to the faithful and the unfaithful, right? But they were prophets. They were uniquely called and empowered and gifted by God so that their words were actually the words of God to their culture, to their society, and to the human race. Their words had their origin in God, not in pride, not in anger, certainly not in political idolatry, and not in smug superiority. And, have you noticed, when the prophets called for repentance, they usually included themselves. They didn't create a woke class and the ignorant. Now, David's words remind us that when God finds his people dwelling in unity, he will call attention to it. Behold. 
So it's safe to say unity increases the church's witness. And that's a big, big thing. Now, the next revealing word is that word dwell. It is a word of significant, persistent effort. It involves much more than being in the same room together once a week for 70 minutes. David knew that preserving unity is hard work. Will you say that with me? Preserving unity is hard work. Now, notice what I said. Preserving unity, not creating it. Only the Holy Spirit can create unity. Human effort will not create unity. But as Paul reminded us in Ephesians 4.3, we are obligated to protect and preserve the unity that God's Spirit has created. And doing that requires vigilance, because there's always threats on the horizon, humility, and effort. It means we stay put when we would just as soon find the closest exit. It means we're willing to entertain the complex when our hearts long for the simple. It means we have to abandon our comfort zones and the security blankets of simple answers, sweeping stereotypes, tribalism, and generalizations. And it often requires repentance. Dwelling in unity requires grit and a lot of grace. Now, before we move on, I want to remind you that it's unity that God blesses and endorses, not uniformity. Unity doesn't mean everyone acts like the majority. Unity means everyone acts like a child of God. Hmm? Let me say that again because the implications of that are so massive. Unity doesn't mean everyone acts like the majority. That's assimilation. Unity means everyone acts like a child of God. They base their conduct, their values, their relationships upon their identity as a redeemed child of God. Not as a Republican, not as a Democrat, not as white, not as black, not as Hispanic, not as Asian, not rural, not urban, not whatever. They base their conduct and their relationships on their eternal identity as a child of God, not their temporal identity as something else. Unity means we value alignment with the eternal and we enjoy variety everywhere else. Now, David next likened the influence of unity to the anointing oil poured out upon the head of Aaron many years earlier. And as he did so, David employed several common biblical symbols. First, when Aaron was anointed high priest, scented oil was poured over his head. Now, today we know in the new covenant, Christ is our anointed high priest, and Christ is the head of of the church, his body. Second, we know that oil in Scripture symbolizes the outpouring and the empowering of God's Spirit. Third, the oil didn't remain on Aaron's head or Aaron's hand, however you want to do it. It, it flowed down his beard and onto his garments and down to the edge of his robes. 
And if you notice, God often uses clothing analogies to address believers' identity, lifestyle, priorities, and values. Put off, put on. Let your garments be this way. Now, when you combine those three symbols, they tell us that unity is a key indicator of the filling of the Holy Spirit and submission to the Lordship of Christ in every aspect of life. And friends, those are key indicators for the church. Because if the church is not moving in the filling of the Holy Spirit and submission to the Lordship of Christ, it has become a weak imposter and a human enterprise. I stated it in the positive. If I were to state it in the negative, David's analogy tells us that if we resist unity, refuse unity, or worse, destroy unity, we are resisting Jesus and we are quenching the Spirit of God. You know, God is on record that there are seven things that he hates, and the seventh one, those who sow discord among brothers. Ah, that's a strong statement. I'd like to suggest when Jesus returns, you, want, you don't want to be found doing something Jesus hates, for what it's worth. Now, the closing picture of our text speaks of something we should all covet for ourselves and for others. God's continual commanded blessing and the continual refreshing of our souls. Let me explain. David spoke of the dew coming down from Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon stands in the desert where it rises nearly 10,000 feet above sea level. As the cool air from the always snowy peaks of Mount Hermon descends to meet the warm air of the surrounding desert, it forms a heavy dew. Not a light mist, but a heavy, saturating dew that penetrates deep in the soil. And as a result of that, even though Mount Hermon stands in a desert, at the base of the mountain, you will always find lush vegetation, fertile gardens, and flowing cool water, even in times of drought. Now, David chose his word picture carefully. His chosen symbolism suggests several things. First of all, unity is a remedy for many of the dry places in our lives. You see, we were not created for division. We were not created for hatred. We were not created for animosity. We were created for love, to love God and to love one another. So when you engage in division, you're engaging something that is contrary to your very being as a creation of God. And when you do that, it will take a heavy, heavy toll upon you individually. And when cultures do it, it takes a heavy toll upon them corporately. Division drains our energies. And it creates dry places in our lives. When we're moving in division, we divert our best time and our best thoughts and our best words towards things that are ugly rather than things that are beautiful and eternal. 
Division ruins many relationships, and sadly, division robs us of many more. And it makes us defensive. Our souls are constantly agitated in turmoil while we preach the peace of God. But worse, worse, division blinds us to our own sins. And whatever blinds us to our own sins blinds us to our best selves. Let me say that again. Whatever blinds you to your own sin blinds you to your best self because your sin stands in the way of your best self. In contrast to that, unity enhances our growth in grace and in the knowledge of God. It opens our eyes to the things we need to take to the curb, not once a week, but every week. It opens our eyes to the better things God has for us. It makes us feel secure. It increases joy, and that increases our energy. As we share one another's failures and weaknesses and sins and humiliations, grace does its amazing work. And we're all reminded of what it means to be redeemed humans, formerly broken people in process of being restored and part of the body of Christ. Dwelling in unity is a transforming heart experience that goes so much deeper than political promises, outrage masquerading as virtue, and empty virtue signaling. Dwelling in unity endures even in adverse circumstances. The water flows even in the desert. And like a cool, heavy dew in a hot desert, unity refreshes our spirits. It does so through the differing perspectives of those with whom we dwell and work out the complexities of community. Because different people look at things differently. And when we're talking to them and forming relationships with them, that offers us a window into our own situation that is much bigger than the narrow portal of individualism or any one people group. And their experiences offer us new perspectives on our own experiences. Something else David was saying to us. The blessings that follow unity are commanded, not conditional. That's big. That means they don't depend upon circumstances. They don't depend upon culture. They don't depend upon economics. They don't depend upon politics. They're guaranteed by God. And nothing can keep God's people from those blessings. That's good news. You know, Satan is a divider. He literally divided the host of heaven for God or for him and against God. And then he brought his sick act to earth and quickly divided Adam and Eve from their creator. And from that point on, division has been imprinted on the DNA of this fallen world where it remains to this day. 
There are spiritual reasons for prejudice, polarization, tribalism, identity politics, ungodly competition, greed, classism, sexism, and bigotry. Things that drive wedges between insecure and fearful people. Things that devastate an increasing number of lives. Things that destroy cultures. Things that fuel escalating sorrow. And in the midst of that, many people tragically, naively, choose to believe that the problem exists because of the people they hate. Their political opponents, their economic opponents, or people of a different ethnicity. But Scripture tells us the true story. It reminds us that the chief enemies of unity aren't primarily located in others. They don't flow from a political party, a politician, an ethnicity, or a nation. They're located in human sin, human pride, human insecurity, and human selfishness. They're located in us. Right now, the prevailing mood of our culture is to assign the source of everything evil to a party, a person, a way of thinking, an ethnic group, somebody of a certain economic status, the people of a certain generation. I mean, I I read postings on social media. Uh, There are younger people that just can't wait for my generation to die because they said, we've made a horrible mess of the world. But you see, any time you posit the source of evil in something or someone out there, you stop looking for it in here. And when you stop looking for it in here, you stop growing in grace, you stop growing in your knowledge of God, and you start drifting away from spirit-filled living into carnal, fleshly arrogance. Look, at the end of the day, you are who you are because you have chosen to be who you are, not because of the shortcomings of somebody else. Say, but pastor, what if you were raised in an abusive home? That abusive home is a massive influence, but there is a massive God who stands ready for you to rise above your massive influence of pain and move massively into His better agenda for you. It's there. Healing is there. And let me say without getting off onto a side rail, if you are following closely after Jesus who is the healer, at some point you ought to get healed. If you're still carrying the same old, same old after following Jesus for 40 years, somebody isn't paying attention to somebody. Because he is able to restore what the locust has devoured. 
He is able to take what was intended for evil and turn it for your good. Perpetual victimhood doesn't glorify a powerful God. There are real victims of real evils, but there is a real Savior who can counteract the evils of this world. A man named Phillips years ago wrote a classic, Your God is Too Small. I would suggest we need to reread that writing. You know the mood of our culture. Where is everybody looking when they talk about the source of evil? Out. The other party. Whoever's in the office. And it's nothing new. It's been going on for decades and decades. Or people of a certain ethnicity or people of a certain generation. Them, 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 them. Look, if you are who you are because of them, you don't control them. That means you have no hope of anything better in your life. But if you control who you are by submitting to God, there's hope in your life because you can change the things you don't like. When you remove accountability, you remove hope. That's why perpetual victimhood is not an expression of sensitivity. It is expression of betrayal and cruelty. See, the world doesn't have enduring answers for the things we're talking about. All of their hollow boasts and their empty promises notwithstanding. But God does have the answers. And he's revealed the answers to his church. But the church has to do more than believe the answer. The church has to look like the answer. So it's little wonder that Paul wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an appeal to divine authority. I appeal to you that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. No divisions, no divisions, no divisions. But Lord, he's a Republican. Oh God, he's a Democrat. No divisions, no divisions, no divisions. Surely you are discerning enough to know that our government is hideously broken. That with just a few minor exceptions in an assembly of power-hungry people who will say and do anything to maintain power, expand their power, or regain their power. Because there is a financial rainbow at the end. And when believers divide over that kind of temporary nonsense that a thousand years from now won't even be lent on the pages of history, when an eternal God has called us, let there be no divisions among you. No divisions among you. That's a travesty for the people of God. Paul said that you be united in the same mind. What mind? The mind of Christ. And the same judgment of things. 1 Corinthians 1.10. Like David, Paul knew the place of unity is a place of refreshing and joy and incredible blessing that nothing can keep from you. But the path of division, burnout, dryness, turmoil, fatigue, Discouragement. 
You can choose to go there, but please, if you go there, don't go there in the name of God. Go in your own name. God showed me 35 years ago he wants ACAC to be a place of commanded blessing so that that commanded blessing could then spill out into a community that desperately needs the springs of cool water. That's who God has called us to be. That's who we're going to continue to be. Next week, I want to talk to you about keeping your soul in an election cycle. I've preached it before, but when I preach again, I rework almost all the material. That'll give me opportunity to tick off the people I didn't tick off today. And, and, and that's all right. If I ticked you off today, I've done my job. Because God's Word should make the comfortable uncomfortable and should make the uncomfortable comfortable. Let's pray together. Father, you've called us to something beautiful and now pursuing it, dwelling in it in the midst of an increasingly polarized and ugly culture is a great challenge. We've got to navigate reefs and rocks and winds and currents and contrary voices. But Lord, help us. Help us. We want Jesus at the helm. And if we'll just follow the captain at the helm, we know you'll get us safely to port and it will be a good and eternal thing. And along the way, we will know commanded blessing. We'll be in the place of blessing. Only you can do that and you'll do it if we want it. Help us to want it. In Jesus' name, amen.